Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to America's Best Baseball Podcast. We take you behind the scenes in and around Major League Baseball with former big league manager Kevin Kennedy and veteran baseball broadcaster Rich Herrera. This is the only weekly podcast hosted by someone like Kennedy who played coached and managed in pro ball so we can take you into the manager's office for a real insider's view of baseball alongside a veteran baseball broadcaster like Herrera who has covered the game from coast to coast so let's talk some baseball with your hosts here they are the skipper Kevin Kennedy and Rich Herrera welcome baseball fans to America's best baseball podcast that's the skipper Kevin Kennedy I'm Rich Herrera skip I'm excited to relaunch our podcast a new format and uh, a new partner. It's time. I, it's been a while, Rich, and I try to explain on Twitter a few things that have been going on, and people are expecting it because uh, I told them we would be talking about baseball on Tuesday, and so we're back. And uh, how are you doing otherwise? Everything okay? I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. Went and watched a baseball game yesterday, saw a couple movies. Uh, I am excited to get back to work with you on this podcast. So there's a whole bunch of people, Kevin, that have never heard uh, us before on the radio or on satellite radio, or previous podcasts that we've ever done. So I want to introduce you, introduce me, to a whole new group of listeners, and we've had loyal listeners that have been with us since our days at Fox Sports and on satellite radio and our Inside the Dugout podcast. And I'm excited that we're going to launch now what we're calling America's Best Baseball Podcast. So if you don't mind, Kevin, I'm going to interview you a little bit so the brand-new listeners know exactly who we are. So when we start talking baseball, they go, oh, that's where those stories come from. Or, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, Kevin, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to put the spotlight on you for just Let's a moment. Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. So, so Kevin Kennedy, tell me about your playing career. Tell me about where you grew up. Tell me about your professional career. Well, Rich, I grew up in the middle of the San Fernando Valley. I uh, graduated from uh, Taft High School in Woodland Hills. My teammate at Taft High School was the Hall of Famer Robin Yount. While Robin uh, signed as the third pick in the country, I moved on and went to San Diego State. I was never ready at that point <laughs> of my career to go and play professional baseball. Had I signed when I was 17 or 18, I would have been released probably a year later. I was only five foot four in the 10th grade, and by the time I was a senior at Taft, I was six foot and 160 pounds. And finally, by going to San Diego State and playing four years there, I uh, was drafted in the eighth round by the Baltimore Orioles in 1976, and I was six foot three, and that turned out to be about 220 pounds, which is what my high school p- coach predicted. So that's the beginning of my career. Baltimore signed me. I signed. Uh, within minutes, basically, of when I got drafted. And I'll tell you a quick side story on that. Uh, Back in those days, there was no uh, TV to follow the draft like we have now, MLB TV, etc. So I didn't know when I got drafted. I waited all morning into the late afternoon. I never got a phone call from anybody. I had a pretty good idea to be drafted because two years in a row, I led the PCL in those days. It was called the Pacific Coast League. uh, or the excuse me, PCAA, the Pacific Coast Athletic Association, is what San Diego. I was going to say you're not old enough to play with the right, module of the old PCL. Right, 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 exactly. Not the seals, no. <laughs> uh, Pacific Coast Athletic Association, which is now disbanded, it's totally different where San Diego State plays. But um, I led the league in hitting uh, one year, and my senior year, I finished second, and I was always a good defensive catcher, catch and throw guy. So Baltimore signed me. Drafted me in the eighth round and, and signed me, and I went to Bluefield, West Virginia, which is still, I believe, the blue, the uh, rookie league affiliate for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, and and I moved my way up the ladder from there. Matter of fact, uh, within three weeks, I went to Double A. I replaced Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray went to Triple A. I didn't replace him very well when I got the call up and skipped A ball, but nonetheless, uh, I did move up. And then uh, a year later, 
I was in AAA. Um, bad news is, is that I stayed in AAA because I was a, behind a guy named Rick Dempsey, who was it's pretty good. Who was uh, played four decades in the big leagues and was Baltimore's uh, catcher and had, had signed a um, five-year extension. And uh, I had a pretty good feeling I'd be remaining in AAA <clears throat> unless uh, I learned how to hit left-handed because Earl Weaver wanted a left-handed hitting catcher, and I was not, nor was Rick Dempsey, nor was the backup catcher at that time, a guy named Dave Skaggs. Um, and the reason we bring this up, and I'm going to jump in here with you, Kevin, and the reason we bring this up, folks, when you listen to this podcast, you're going to hear Kevin talk about baseball from a couple different perspectives. As a player, as a player that had success, as a player that scuffled, as a player that knows what it's like to grind and work for a job, then as a manager and as a coach. So as far as inside baseball, inside the dugout, inside the clubhouse and on the field, I can't think of anybody else I'd rather do the podcast with than Kevin Kennedy, who brings that perspective of all the different aspects of baseball to what we do on a weekly basis. You're absolutely right, Rich. And, uh, you know, a little sidebar that people may not know still to this day, because I've stayed in, in, in baseball my whole career, whether it be in uniform or now, of course, the last 20 year plus years as a broadcaster, is that I went and got my accounting degree. In the wintertime, in the offseason, I finished up at Cal State Northridge. When I signed out of San Diego State, because accounting was so grueling, I did not finish and graduate as far as scholastically out of San Diego State, even though I was drafted as a baseball player professionally. But I wanted to get my degree and then later take my CPA, which I did in 1984. And that would come back to help me because I always had something to fall back on. Now, I moved my way up the ladder, as I mentioned, quickly with Baltimore, but I was stuck there. And in those days, in the 70s and 80s, in fact, there was not minor league free agency until 1982. Uh, for the big leagues, we know it started, and uh, it started really get rumbling in the 76 and then 77 with Dave McNally and Andy Messersmith. And if people, the youngsters listening to this, don't know who those guys are, they really started it all. And you can Google those guys. That's what started and created free agency. And you're actually, you can get Kurt Flood, uh, the great Cardinal player. Um, he was in the beginning of what really um, created free agency as well, and uh, basically never played again after he got traded. He refused to be go, go to Philadelphia. That's a long story, but it's worth uh, googling and reading. And as a podcast, and, and it's great inside Ken Burns' uh, baseball yes, special. It is. Baseball. Yes, it is. Uh, Ken Burns has has about a half hour in it, which is intriguing. Yes, it is. But anyway, um, so I, baseball players were stuck. The AAA guys, the guys that were the minor leaguers, were stuck. In today's game, the minor leaguers just like the big leaguers can become six-year free agents and they can go get a job and maybe sign with a team as a non-roster invitee. Back in those days, you could not do that. You were stuck. And so uh, only by the graces of the strike of 1981 that I finally, after a couple of good years in Rochester, I finally begged and pleaded to get another chance somewhere else and I got my release. Now, not normally you don't ask for your release, but I did. I went to St. Louis, and I'll just tighten up the story because we have a lot of time to talk about this over the course of our podcast. Yeah, and again, it's just we're just kind of giving everybody a little insight right. for those that are new that aren't familiar with you or exactly. Me. So what happened from there? Um, I played a year plus with the Cardinals. Didn't play much. I was invited to spring training in 1982. However, they had uh, uh, five roster catchers and I was the non-roster invitee trying to play for Whitey Herzog well I didn't make the club they had guys like Gene Tennis and, and Daryl Porter who were the starters uh, who happened to be hurt in spring training so I got some opportunities to play but nonetheless within 10 days of the first homestand in Louisville Kentucky which was where the ball club was moved to a man named A. Ray Smith owned the AAA club first it was in Springfield Illinois where President Lincoln was born, and then second, he moved it to Louisville, and I played in both places, and I liked A. Ray Smith. A. Ray was very close to me and a very good man, and I remember going to the ballpark uh, one day, 11 days into the season. We were going to be on a road trip, a bus trip, to play Evansville, which was the Detroit Tigers AAA team, and I got released, and I didn't know it. Wait a minute, you got to tell the story real quick. Let's drop in our first All story right. of our new podcast. How did you find out, Kevin, you got released? In those days, the meal money was passed out by the owner of the ball club that owned the AAA club, not the St. Louis Cardinals. The meal money came from the AAA owner and AAA general manager, which was A. Ray Smith. So I, I walked into the office 
to get my meal money for the 10-day upcoming road trip. And he said to me, how come you got released? I can't believe it. The way you play and as hard as you play, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I said, I got released. Nobody told me. Huh? Nobody told me. Manager didn't tell now, you? Uh, farm director didn't tell you? Farm, Nobody. Farm director, because we're open and there's a lot of transparency in our podcast, was Lee Thomas, a great baseball man. Uh, he was the farm director, and he it was his job to tell me. And um, a guy that's managing right now, Jim Riggleman, was the third base coach in AAA that year. Now, I was supposed to play for Kenny Boyer, who I'd played for in Rochester. Unfortunately, the winter before I, I, I spring training started in 82, he contacted cancer. He passed away within six months. It was a shame. I mean, it was just awful. A man named Joe Frazier, manager that managed the Mets before the big leagues, took over. So I didn't have anybody in my corner but Jim Riggleman, who I played with in Winterball. And Jim kind of gave me some insight and said, you know, the Houston Astros want you. This was before spring training ended because I kind of could see foresee what was on the handwriting on the wall because they had – You know what the depth chart is. You know what's in front of you. Exactly, because they had AAA uh, catchers that were being optioned back that were prospects that were that were actually ahead of me on the prospect chart, not just the two big league guys I already mentioned. So I knew what the score was. And uh, no, I was not let go to Houston when they wanted me. They asked for me. In those days, too, Rich, something we should explain, you could loan players from organizations even though they were under control. For example, I was under control by St. Louis, but if the Houston Astros needed a AAA catcher and didn't have anybody ready from AA to catch in AAA, and you had many catchers like the Cardinals did, you could call up and say, hey, I'd like to have one of your catchers. Could I have Kevin Kennedy? He already played five years in AAA in Rochester. We need a veteran AAA catchers to help um, catch our, our young starters in AAA and help develop them. Well, that was the case. So Jim Ruggeman really was a good friend of this day, and I'm glad he's managing the Cincinnati Reds, and they're doing a great job, by the way, since he's taken over. Uh, Jimmy gave me some insight and said, I've tried to tell them to let you go to Houston, but they won't do it. They don't know when tennis and Porter will be back. So they need you in AAA, et cetera. And bottom line is I had an opportunity to go start and play in Houston, which really needed catching in their organization. And I probably would have gone to the big leagues with them, them, but nonetheless, that didn't happen. So I got my, I got my release. Well, here's the, the story that really became the turning point of my life. Number one, I thought to myself as I sat there talking to A-Ray, as he told me, he said, Kevin, who do you want to play for? I said, what? I said, you have that kind of power inside? Yeah. He said, yes, I do. Uh, I'm a well-known owner in AAA baseball. Uh, I'm an oil man. Well-respected. Well-respected man. I said, uh, I said, well, I'd like to play on the West Coast because my whole career I've been on the East Coast, whether it be Rochester, spring training in Miami, et cetera. Uh, playing in North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, Bluefield, West Virginia. I'd like to be on the West Coast. I'd like to either play in the PCL, as I mentioned earlier, Rich. I say I'd like to play for Tucson, Phoenix, or Albuquerque. Tucson was the Astros, AAA team. Phoenix was the Giants. Right, the Giants. And the Dodgers were in Albuquerque. The Albuquerque Dukes. And he said, hey, you want to go to Albuquerque? I said, well, that's the Dodgers. That would be a dream come true. My goodness, I grew up in Los Angeles, born and raised a Dodger fan. And anybody that knows me that is listening to this podcast is probably <laughs> sick to death of hearing me tell Koufax and Drysdale stories from the 60s and Maury Will stories, but that's how, and Ben Scully stories. But that's how I grew up listening to Ben Scully on the old transistor radio, and he got me interested in baseball, and the rest is history. But anyway... I said, I want to play for the for the Dodgers. Now, I had other opportunities. I had an offer from the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, I had an offer from the Minnesota Twins. I had an offer from the Detroit Tigers. But I said, the Dodgers, I got to go there. Now, they had Steve Yeager in those days. I mean, this is the early 80s. So Steve was still there. Socia was the big prospect who had just come up. The Dod Was Ferguson around? Joe Ferguson was still. I think Joe had become a coach by that time. Okay. Uh, close to Tommy Lasorda. Um, but they had a, I mean, Socia was the guy that was going to replace Jaeger, which eventually he did. Jaeger was still playing, though. And, and by the way, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Socia in just a minute of the podcast as well. So go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. So anyway, I go home, I fly home, uh, Rich, and, and I, um, 
I'm with my girlfriend who later became my wife many years later. I'm at her house. I said, I said, Kathy, I haven't hit taking batting practice in about three or four days. Cause I stayed in Louisville for a couple of days until a Ray said, Hey, they've got an opportunity for you. I believe with the Dodgers get home back to LA. And I think you're going to get a phone call anyway. So I decided not to sign with Milwaukee, not to sign with Minnesota or any of those other teams. And I called Frank Robinson, who I'd met, played for and, and really well in Rochester, and he didn't have an opportunity because Bob Brenly, who's now a D-backs broadcaster, he was the catcher right. at that time. So Frank Frank uh, suggested that uh, that probably L.A. was a good opportunity for me. So I got advice from a you know Hall of Famer and a great baseball man in A. Ray Smith. So I flew home. As soon as I got home, it was late afternoon. Within an hour, I went to the batting cage here in the San Fernando Valley. There was a batting cage called Buddy's Bataway, right on Ventura Boulevard. The one where you put the, the, the change inside you the machine? You put quarters inside, you put a quarter in, and you get 10 pitches. And guys like Dusty Baker and Ron Say and a lot of the Dodgers used to go there. They didn't have, in those days, batting cages in their backyard. <laughs> and while they were making good money, it's not comparable to even close to what it is today. It's not like the Ripken mansion that he's no. selling that has a full baseball no, field? No, exactly, exactly. So they, just like a lot of the professionals that played in the San Fernando Valley or grew up in the Valley or lived in the Valley, that's where they would go. That was the only batting cage around in the west side of the Valley. So I immediately went to the batting cage and took, I don't know, about $10 and, uh, you know, hit, hit for an hour. And they had a, a fast machine there. In fact, they call it the Kofax machine. They had a, a slower machine, and that would be the, the Don Drysdale machine. Not fair to Don because he threw pretty hard. And they would have the uh, – See yeah. some little kid standing there with PF flyers going, yeah. come on, mister, you're hogging the machine. The uh, rest of us want to Well, play. I was on a machine that threw over 90 miles an hour, so that wasn't a problem. <laughs> uh, but if you wanted to hit off speed stuff, there was a machine for that as well. But there were about seven or eight. Uh, the old iron mics. If uh, people don't know what that is, Google that one. Yeah, I remember those. <laughs> but it would come right over the top, and it had an arm on it, and it would just fling the ball. And those were better, actually, than the old uh, jugs machine with the two round tires. Spinning, yeah, the spinning tires. The ball tires. would just shoot out of there where you wouldn't be able to develop uh, a leg kick or a launch angle. Right. Or anything like that. You wouldn't have time. That's why we used our hands. We were taught to use our hands more in those days. They didn't talk about lower half like they do today. Guys didn't have the big leg kicks. And if, when you practice on those machines, you didn't have time to do that. You had to react and, and uh, use your hands and, and hit fastballs. A lot like what Matt Kemp's doing today. Matt Kemp doesn't have any stride at all. He's just using his hands. And he's a... Uh, no. Yeah. And he's third. No, no, no. Absolutely like that. He's completely revitalized. Exactly. Getting rid of all that noisy stuff from the exactly. bottom. Exactly. He's not moving his feet. And if you watch Matt Kemp, he's hitting like we did. Back in the seventies and eighties, he's not. Long or he's 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 hitting with the two strike approach, where I'm gonna shorten my swing, choke up a little bit, spread my feet, and put the ball in play. It's something good's gonna Including happen. Including last night, where he came off the bench and hit a, a double and uh, got the Dodgers rally started. Puig scored, made it four to three. The Dodgers scored three runs in the bottom of the eighth, and they came back and beat the Phillies after being down four to nothing. For people that watched that game last night, it was a national game. So, and that's why. So okay, so let's let me let me speed this up so we can get to a couple yeah. of things here. So you you signed with the Dodgers. So right? here's the rule. Um, I want to tell this real quick, and then we'll yeah. go to, we'll jump forward. So I'm at the batting cage for an hour. I get back home, and Kathy says to me, "Hey, a Mister Schweppe called from the Dodgers." I said, "What? What is he doing calling at eight o'clock at night? That doesn't make sense." Well, little did I know that that farm directors were there on home days from 8 in the morning till midnight. I didn't realize that those guys worked all day and night and stayed for the game. So I called him back, and he said, Kevin, this is Bill Schweppe, the L.A. Dodgers. We have an opportunity for you. Can you be in Spokane, uh, get on a plane to Spokane early tomorrow? You can catch the second game of a doubleheader for Del Crandall and the Albuquerque Dukes, which is the Dodgers. I said, I was already out the door before he finished his last sentence. And that's Boom. how it started. I went to Albuquerque, played on the 82 team, which was a championship team with Oral Hershazer, Alejandro Pena, Ron Reinecke. I could go on and on. There were so many prospects. And that's how I got into the Dodgers system. And I'll leave it right there because there's so much more. 
oh, there's, you know, he went on, he was a, uh, um, became a minor league coach, farm director, uh, worked with just about everybody in baseball, got an opportunity to manage. So Kevin's been around the game for a little bit, folks. And we have these conversations and Kevin's going to bring you a perspective that you're not going to hear anybody else. Cause I don't know Kevin and I looked it up. I don't think there's any other big league manager that's hosting a weekly podcast as the host they could give the insides. We're going to give away on America's Best Baseball Podcast. And, and let me just tag something real quick about you, because at, when I became a minor league manager, which was shortly after that, <laughs> uh, right? after my first year with the Dodgers, I still wanted to play. I was only 28, I think, 29. But they, and, and I'll get back to the uh, the uh, accounting story too. I had started that winter an accounting business with a partner, and. We were going to do taxes for players, and he wanted to become an agent. I did not because I didn't want to cross that because once you cross that barrier back then, you could never go back to being a player in uniform. That's the feeling it was anyway. And so my first two clients were my teammates, uh, Dave Anderson and Greg Brock. And, and anyway, the Dodgers kept calling me, calling me, calling me, and said, you know, and they started offering me a little bit of money, which was actually more than I was making in AAA, and to be a coach. In, in Lodi. And uh, I said, what? Lodi, A-ball. And anyway, I decided to do that, but I only did that because it, in the spring training, I was doing taxes at night, especially for a lot of the Latin players that needed help. Guys that were instructors named Leo Posada and Chico Fernandez, phenomenal people. They both were uh, Cuban and they, and they lived in Miami. They helped uh, the Latin American kids, the kids that came over from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela etc. And um, the kids, I did their taxes for them for free in hopes that later on that uh, they could uh, be my clients later on. Because I did not know that I would become a manager. But as the spring went on, I really liked it. I remember calling my partner at the end of the spring back in LA and I said, uh, you know, uh, I think I'm going to stay in this coaching thing a little bit, uh, probably just a year or two. So I, I'll still help you in the wintertime, but I'm really into this. I really like coaching and teaching. And anyway, there's another story leading up to how I became a manager, but I did, and, and the rest is, is history. Oh, oh, then oh. I ran like, across. But getting, yeah. Like getting yeah. to back to Rich, after managing three years in rookie ball, I finally got promoted to, to A-ball, and A-ball was Bakersfield. That was our A affiliate back in, the, in those days. And Rich, that's how I met Rich. You know, subliminally, I guess I met Rich. Exactly. Because I could hear this so they voice had yelling at me. And Rich, you want to take it from me? So they would have they would have promotions like they do in all minor league cities, and one of them was quarter beer night or cheap beer night, maybe dime beer night back then. <laughs> and I would go to the games, and I would stand behind the Dodgers dugout, the B Dodgers dugout, <laughs> and I would just scream at the top of my lungs at the manager of the Bakersfield Dodgers. I'd yell about his mustache. I'd yell about the way he stood. I'd yell about his team. I would just heckle him all night long until I got kicked out. Lo and behold, all these years later, that manager turns out to be Kevin Kennedy. And we've been together, we've been stuck together ever since. We worked at Fox Sports Radio together. Uh, we worked in Tampa Bay together. We work in satellite radio together. And we work here. So, um... I'm not sure that was the best or worst day of your life, Kevin, but you're stuck with me nonetheless. No, it turned out great because years later you were working in the Bay Area for clubs. I got the chance of managing the big leagues. You interviewed me, and and then uh, later on. And you were a good interview. You were you were pretty easy well, to interview. Well, you know, I think that's why I got into broadcasting because I felt that the media was really an important part of promoting our game and explaining how and why. I did some of the things I did as a manager. I used to tell our team broadcasters, I said, hey, when I do the manager's show every day after yesterday's game, and we do it the next next afternoon prior to the next game, I would say, hey, ask me the tough questions. Don't be soft on me. Ask me why I did what I did last night. Ask me why I pitched ran for this guy or why I put the hit and run on or why I did the run and hit play or why I put the safety squeeze on, et cetera. And I want to explain to the fans, you know, I want to teach them why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's how I, ha I became, um, as you said, a good interview. I felt like I could articulate that over the air. And so years later, after my career in uniform was done, I got an opportunity to do that. And uh, I've been doing it ever since uh, broadcasting in one way or the other, whether it be TV or radio, since uh, 1997. So when we 
talk about things in the game of baseball. Kevin's been a player uh, with success, like I said earlier, struggles. He's been a, a, a coach. He's been a manager. He's been a farm director. He's done everything that you can do in the game. I worked in front offices before. Uh, I broadcast. Uh, I was a post-game show host for the Giants, the A's. Did minor league play-by-play for the Diamondbacks, uh, Tampa Bay, and uh, last year at San Diego. So we're going to come at this in a whole different direction because we're going to be able to tell you what goes on inside the front office. I've been in meetings with general managers. He's been in meetings with general managers. You're going to hear a different perspective because we could take you inside the game probably better so than than anything else that you're going to find out there podcast-wise, and, and that's why we hope you enjoy our, our bi-weekly podcast. We'll be doing this twice a week for you. But today, just wanted to kind of introduce ourselves in our very first podcast here uh, that we're titling now America's Best Baseball Podcast. So, Kevin, let's jump into a couple of baseball news let's and do notes. It. Give me the, the give me the state of the game right now. Let's talk about the National League West that I was bragging during spring training. This is going to be the best division of baseball. This turns out to be a division where nobody could get it right, and everybody keeps spinning their wheels. Well, Listen, Rich, uh, you've worked for the MLB Network radio channel uh, off and on for a while. I was uh, the last, I'm the last guy standing in, since 05 of MLB Network radio, which then was called XM Radio, now Sirius XM Radio. I uh, worked with Rob Dibble the first three years, and I've been there ever since. The last few years as a part-timer. And what we both have to do when we work that show is do our preseason picks of all the divisions and the World Series, etc., and I picked the Dodgers to repeat. Um, no, I can't believe and, well, that. Well, what, what people will find out about me is, yes, I'm a Dodger fan. I grew up a Dodger fan. But I am not biased as far as my constructive criticism. If they do something that needs to be talked about, I, I'll bring it up. I'm not afraid to do that. I'm not. Nobody has ever told me in the front office, hey, you can't say that on the air. Um, you can't do that. Nobody's ever put a governor on me. And, and they, they've heard me long enough that they know I'm not going to rip anybody, whether it be the opposing team or, or the home team, as far as getting personal or, or really yell at them or make it bad. I'm just going to explain, you know, what they were thinking, what they could have done, what they should be thinking and what they and then, and, then, yell and, scream and then what they did do. And then Rich can do the yelling and screaming at them. So I picked the Dodgers, not because of uh last year and not because of my bias because i'm working for them and doing 40 games on radio this year again for them like i have the last two years um i picked them based on my evaluation of the talent and the more you hear our podcast you know that i'm a real big believer in seeing people in person to evaluate statistics are great they give you historical information but players make adjustments they have a place in our game they have a place they have a place in they our have game. a place yeah. absolutely but i felt the best scouts and i still feel this way um, scout by the eye test because you can see if a guy's made an adjustment. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Matt Kemp, when he walked into spring training this year, I heard he lost 40 pounds. When I saw him, I walked right past him. I didn't recognize him. I thought it was a kid at the age of 22. He lost 40 pounds. He changed his swing, and now he's second or third in the league in hitting. That's how people make adjustments. If you go by on what he did the last three years or four years, you wouldn't have signed him. You wouldn't have traded for him. So that's why – the stats are great, but you also have to look at the eye test. Well, wait a minute. He's made an adjustment. He's doing something different now. Those reports that I'm getting are, are not accurate because this guy has changed in the last couple of weeks. And, yes, big league players are, have the ability to adjust if they want to and make changes. So um, as far as that, though, I picked the Dodgers rich, and I, I thought Colorado and Arizona would be battling for the wild card again. Uh, I did not – and I picked the Washington Nationals. Let's just stay with the National League for a moment. Yeah. I picked the Nationals going away. I had no clue that Philadelphia would be as good as they are, nor the Atlanta Braves. Because, why? Because I haven't seen Albies in person or Acuna in person. Uh, and I saw the depth of the Washington Nationals, if they're healthy, as a team that, with, with Scherzer at the top and Strasburg, as a team that, that should blow that division away. Not necessarily go through the playoffs, Again, and, and maybe they'd lose in the first round, but I thought they'd win the division easily. And it, they'd be the class of yeah, the division. Yeah, and we are at the one-third point, so it's a good time to talk about our podcast, bringing it up the last two-thirds of the regular season, because 54 games in is what the Dodgers are at and most teams are at. That's one-third of a season, and that's what I always felt as a manager. Anywhere from 40, the, the quarter pull to the one-third mark, that generally gives you an idea of where your club is at, what kind of ball club you have. There's enough at-bats by that time. There's enough starting appearances by the starters at that time. 
Injuries, of course, crop up for all teams at that time. You can see the depth you have in the minor leagues at that time. And so now we look around Major League Baseball, and you got to ask yourselves, and I do, are the Braves for real? Haven't seen them in person yet, but I see they're in first place. Are the Phillies for real? Um, I have a take on the Phillies, for example, after watch, uh, watching them last night in person for the first time versus just watching them from afar and seeing that they're playing really, really well. Um, the Nationals saw them in person a lot recently. And without Murphy and Adam Eaton in there, um, they are a different team. That lineup is not very deep because why? They don't have the depth of replacements like some of the organizations do, like I feel the Dodgers do. So when the Dodgers have Kershaw going down, and by the way, he's going to start on Thursday. He's had bicep tendonitis. And when you have Ryu, who was pitching phenomenally, go down, he's not going to be back till after the All-Star break. You're going, well, who's going to replace those guys? Well, how about Walker Bueller and Ross Stripling? Check oh, those guys out. Filthy. filthy. Most organizations don't have two guys like that that can step in and replace a Kershaw. Most organizations don't have enough depth in their starting and a Ryu. to do that. That's my point. So I knew they had those guys if something happened, and they've stepped in and done an incredible job. Um, I think the one thing for the Dodgers, uh, I mean, losing Corey Seager is huge, and a lot of people want to see Machado being traded there. I don't think that's going to happen because knowing Dan Duquette like I have, I work for him in Montreal and in Boston, he's going to ask for the moon, and especially Walker Bueller, and we know that's not happening. Why wouldn't he? And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't and he? Then, and then let's take the National League Central. I didn't know Cincinnati would come into L.A. and sweep the Dodgers four straight. Now, I didn't pick Cincinnati, but um, they, their leading hitter in the National League, who would have picked at this point Scooter Jeanette? The guy's a different hitter than he was three years ago. He's turned into a launch angle guy. He hits for power. He's got a better eye track in the ball. He uses the field. He's a different hitter. He's leading the National League in hitting. So, anyway... Um, most people thought, well, the West, as you said to begin this part, portion of the podcast, would be the dominant division. It's not so. Arizona does not have the depth that people thought they did it. We thought Goldschmidt would have his normal year. He's not. He's having a terrible year. He's hitting, they missed J.D. They Martinez. They missed J.D. Martinez, who was a phenomenal pick for Boston, which is why when Boston got J.D. Martinez, that was the turning point for me. I picked Boston over New York on my preseason picks with uh, Satellite and everybody Radio. Everybody laughed at Everybody us. laughed at us. But I thought that was enough because, why? You and I both saw J.D., that he was for real with those 40, what was it, 45-plus home runs that he hit. I mean. And he made Goldie a he better made go He protected Goldie. And no disrespect to Chris Owings, but Goldie's not getting a pitch to hit. Now, even with, with Pollock no. was out, has been out now. For, he's going to be out for eight weeks. Goldie's really not getting anything to hit. So what is he doing? Hitters start expanding their own zone. He's not, he's not right. taking as many walks. He's swinging at bad pitches. He's got the highest swing and miss percentage of guys. Uh, he's not just waiting for those mistakes. No, and he's not getting mistakes. And so he's trying to force the action. Why? Because if he takes a walk, Chris Owings is hitting a buck 83 or a buck 93 right now. They just don't, they just don't have the depth. So, so Arizona is not as deep as people thought. And Colorado is playing okay. They're in first place uh, over the Dodgers by three and a half games. And Arizona is now in second place. But um, it's basically a division that's been hovering just a couple of games above the 500 mark. So, I mean, you look at everybody. You look at everybody. The Colorado Rockies, five and five over the last 10 days. Arizona, two and eight. Dodgers have gotten hot. Uh, beating up on the Padres, they go eight and two. San Francisco three and seven. San Diego five and five. I look at it. I thought we'd naturally see a regression for Arizona. They don't have the guns that they had, and I thought JD Martinez was going to be I a big too. Uh, minus for them. I knew that Bud Black was going to have Colorado challenging for first, if not the wild card. The Dodgers, they didn't see any of the injuries. At San Francisco, a second year in a row, they lose Mad Bum and uh, now Cueto's out for a little bit. But the whole thing is, I look at the division in San Diego's real, real young, and, and their time is coming in the next couple of years. But I look at this division. If I'm San Francisco and I've just dropped down to fourth place, I'm not panicking if I'm Bruce Bochy. I'm four games back. That's 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 10 days of getting hot inside the division. I'm back in first place, and that's the same for uh, Doc Roberts with the, with the Dodgers. That's the same for the Arizona Diamondbacks, same for Colorado Rockies. This is so winnable right now at Memorial Day. It's amazing that this thing is so grouped up the way well, it is. Well, I tweeted about, what, I don't know, two and a half, three weeks ago that this is a winnable division. This was when the Dodgers were 10 games under, 500. Right. And now I think they're three games under. 
Uh, and a lot of people on Twitter, you know, said, ah, oh, Kevin, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, et cetera. Uh, some Dodger fan, I figured it was in a different name. I, I figured that. Uh, some Dodger fans said, hey, Kevin, you've, you've talked me from walking off the ledge. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. But a lot, of, a lot of people out there thought it was ridiculous that the season was over. National analysts, I heard. Oh, they were trying to bury Doc Roberts. It, it, uh, finally he the was manager. getting fired, and and the Dodgers were done. Corey, especially when Corey Corey could, Seager could, went could down. Could you go pry Dusty Baker away from that special assistant job in San Francisco? They go get him. Absolutely, everybody thought. That and he this was is close. why our podcast, Rich, is is exactly what you said, and then you you named it. So I'm going to uh, tag that one on you. The, the best podcast. I re- I really believe that because I've heard all the other ones. I really have. Um, and I am into social media today. I think you have to be to keep up on what's going on, and if you, especially if you want the information quickly. And when I saw and heard analysts from around the country, uh, whether they hate the Dodgers or not, just sparing the Dodgers, saying they're done, they're going to finish just ahead of the Padres, those are, are going to be the seller dwellers. That's what prompted me to tweet when I tweeted three, I think it was three weeks ago or so. And it was based on my evaluation of what I see, not what somebody else said. Because if you haven't seen a team a lot, and I watch the Arizona Diamondbacks a lot, I'm working 40 games on radio for the Dodgers, with Rick, mostly with Rick Monday, which means I'm not at Dodgers Stadium every night. I go even when I'm not working their game, but I go not only to evaluate the Dodgers, to go see the opposing team. I want to see everybody yeah. else. Yeah. And, so, and also, when you work at a national radio show like Sirius XM, which mostly I do on Saturday nights with Sam Ryan, you have to know all the teams, the American League, too. And I watch all the games, but, but in particular, right. the National League West. So I really watch the Rockies a lot, and I watch the Giants a lot, and I watch the D-backs a lot. And that's what prompted me to tweet what I tweeted a few weeks ago about this is a winnable division. Um, the Dodgers can pick up two games a week, and here's how you do it, etc. You could probably still find the tweet. And that's exactly what they've done. In fact, they're ahead of schedule. They went, they went right. from nine back, eight and a half to nine back at the time I tweeted, to three and a half games back. I said, pick. The only, the only winning record in the last 10 days in the National League West. All right, I want to bring something else up, Kevin, uh, because we promised. That's the other thing. Uh, we're going to try to keep it about 45 right. minutes yeah. uh, for each podcast. So it's enough that you can either fall asleep listening to us or for your run or for your bike ride or for your ride to work as well. So we don't want to go longer than that because we want to be able to have it uh, manageable for you as well. I do want to bring up something out of the National League West. 1-0. Ground ball to short. Rodriguez will throw to the plate for one. Diaz fires it over the head of the first baseman. Diaz and Diaz. Elias Diaz is hurt. Josh Bell had no chance. Elias Diaz is rolling on the ground in front of the dirt circle in pain as the slide from Rizzo not only toppled Elias Diaz and Clint Hurdle goes to the home plate umpire first to argue about that slide while Elias Diaz is flat on his back on the grass. And meanwhile, two more runs score. Rizzo, did you see yes. the slide against the Pittsburgh Pirates? Yes. So it's a bang-bang play at the plate. Uh, Sean Rodriguez in shortstop fires the ball home to start the 6-2-3 double right. play. Shortstop to the catcher, catcher to the first place, uh, first base to get uh, the hitter. So Rizzo's at third base, bears down at Diaz, the catcher, Diaz, the catcher, steps in the plate, shuffles forward straight towards the pitcher's mound, and Rizzo comes and clips his ankle and takes it out from underneath him. Uh, what were your thoughts on the play? Uh, absolutely a clean play. I agree 100% with Joe Madden. I agree 100% with Eric Burns. I thought I saw Eric get very angry at Brian Kenny uh, and very assertive on that with Ron Darling was there explaining that. I saw that live. I saw him explain it. Um, I totally agree with uh, especially Joe Madden, what he said. Um, if you can't do that, sliding through home plate, and yeah, stick out your left leg. If the catcher's right there within that distance um, and you can't get out of the way as a catcher, that's your fault. First of all, you don't take the ball from behind home plate on, on the infield end like that in a play at home plate. You take the ball with your feet, your back foot on the edge of the black of home plate so like you're a first like you're a first baseman, uh, exactly. Therefore, you can clear yourself. And the reason you do that is so you can clear yourself from the runner. Now, I heard Ron Darling say, well, he didn't turn and stride toward first base. Well, that, that's not which I thought was that's not yeah. actually true because the throw is from shortstop. So you've got to stretch toward shortstop to make sure that you've got that the lead out. You can't stretch toward first base or slide toward, you know, 
shuffle immediately toward first base. He did the right thing there, but the problem was he was behind home plate to take the throw and then shuffled his feet across so, the plate. Therefore, he was not a foot and a half, two feet further out in front when he did decide to square or did square up toward first base to make his return throw to get the double play. And that and that's what enabled now, that's what enabled Rizzo to get a piece of him. So that was not a dirty play. That was a clean play. I would uh, teach differently, and I did teach differently. I was a roving catching instructor for the Dodgers for many years on on blocking the play, which they don't do anymore, but especially on that double play ball so you don't get clipped like that on, on where to take the throw. And it's definitely like a first baseman, not from behind the bag, at fir- from behind home plate at first, and then, and then sliding your feet across the home plate and then taking the throw because you can get hurt for that very reason we just described. Now, Major League Baseball's come out uh, the day after and said that interference should have been called on Anthony Rizzo for the slide at home plate. Uh, Both teams were informed of MLB's decision. Uh, Taking out the leg right there uh, is is interference. So you're already out, right? Um, Are you allowed to leave the width of the base path to go clip him, to go get him? I understand that the catcher's probably should have shuffled out a little bit more to make that throw, but he still interferes with him trying to make a play, which I can understand where baseball's coming out at it, that it's interference. Well, this is my problem with uh, some of the rules today. When Buster Posey got hurt, he didn't get hurt because Cousins came in and ran out of the baseline to take no. him out. Yes, he did do that, but that's not why he got hurt. He got hurt because he was in a bad position and he was blindsided. He was way out in front of the plate. The throw was coming from right center field. He had no vision of where the runner was, and he got his knees and his ankles and his hips were locked underneath. Exactly where he couldn't roll, and that's how he twisted and broke his ankle when he got hit. Here's the thing that in those days, in which you don't have to do anymore, but what you you should have done, you you got to be back on the plate on a throw from right field, especially so you have vision where the runner is at all times. And it's something that Mike Sosha taught and did, and who's the best. And he was so good at taking that blow. He was the best. Taking the energy, of, and then he would hold on to the ball, and the umpire would look down, and we've exactly. seen it a million times. Umpire would point down at Socha. He holds up the ball. Exactly. You're out. You, don't, you don't ever lose sight of where the runner is. Now, if the ball's hit the left field or center field, you can see where the runner is. You can see if he's going to take you out, if he's going to try to go around you, if he's going to try to slide. But from right field or right center, you can't see when you're way out in front. That's why you stay deeper on the plate. Your, your legs, act, your feet actually straddle the home uh, diamond of home plate. That's where your feet straddle so you can see where the ball's coming from and you can see where the runner is. And you know when the runner's coming that he has to go through you to score. Now, if you don't want to get hit and you're one of those guys that wants to get out of the way and you see the runner staying up, you can do that and you can olay it. You can get out of the way. You can, you can, you can do the take, swipe take, tag. Take, Kelly the, ball to do and, that all take the, the ball and do the swipe tag. So you got it. So that's and the umpire has been trained to know where I stand if I'm going to sw- if you're going to set up for a swipe or you're going to take the collision. Rich, you should have been a catcher. You got it perfectly. You understand it. Well, the point. <laughs> See, I've been hanging around well, you long enough. The point being, that rule never should have had to be put in play because you know Buster. No disrespect to Buster, but he obviously wasn't taught right. And if he was taught to stay away from home plate so he wouldn't get hurt, well, to me that was a mistake because anytime you start teaching that and playing the game where. Well, you know what? We want to take it easy. Don't run hard because, you know, we don't want to get hurt. I, I, I saw a guy do that on Twitter to me, a few people on Bryce Harper the other day when I said, Bryce Harper's not running. And, and, uh, I, said, and I said, yeah. And they said, well, he got hurt last year running hard. I said, yeah, because he started running when he realized he had a chance to beat it out. And he started running too late and got in between and, and hit the bag. And the field was wet that day. The bag was wet. And that's how he almost you know, was out for the rest of the year with a, with a knee problem by hyperextending his knee. If you play the game the so-called right way, you play it hard, you play it correctly, you're set up correctly, you're taught correctly where to be at all times, yes, there's going to be contact, but you got a chance to really um, not be hurt or you got a way to, ways to get out of the way, just like middle infielders. Right. I talked to Nomar Garcia-Parra a lot. He's still upset that, the, that you can't, at second base, you can't have the neighborhood play for infielders, and he liked it when runners would try to take him out. You just jump over him, and there's there's well, ways and you, you learn. And, and we'll talk yeah. about it later. We'll, well talk about it later on the yeah. podcast. There's ways, there's to, ways protect to protect yourself. yourself. So so anyway, point being, I understand where MLB's coming from, uh, but the bottom line is if you teach kids and players to play the game and be set up the right way, you won't have these injuries, and we wouldn't have all these rules that are being put in play right now to, 
to um, and I heard Eric Burns say this because he covers uh, college baseball. College baseball, they go at it. They take infield. They they can break up double plays, et cetera. They can do things. But in, in big league baseball now, we're doing what little league does. I mean, but Rizzo, but but this is not the first time that Rizzo has taken a catcher out and people weren't happy about it. Because remember, he did it last year, Dawson Hedges, where Hedges is clearly out of the way, and he just went and bowled him over, took him out. He 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 broke the rule then, and then he stood there and goes, well, I was taught it was game on once somebody well, has the ball, which is not true no, anymore. That's, that's, that, Joe stood up for him, and now he's doing well, that's, it again. That's egregious. I mean, that was an egregious play. This one wasn't as egregious as that because – no, it because was not. Diaz, it's because same. Diaz was there. If Diaz is, is is cleared like he should have been, is is a, is another foot away. Then, and you don't have then a problem. if Rizzo goes after him, I hundred percent agree that uh, he should be fine, suspended. The game should have been turned around, whatever. But because Diaz didn't get out of the way and had the ball, I I think it is game on. I still have that mentality. But he's but he's not trying to. Well, I guess he is trying he's to trying to win a game, like Eric Burns said. He's trying well, he, to win a game. But, He's trying to win a game, but he's trying to break up the double play. But he still doesn't have – He's does he, does he have the right to go and interfere with the second half of that throw when you're already out? I know they do it at second base, so I, I'm just trying to search for the rhyme or reason why it's interference or not interference. Because, because he still was sliding across the plate. He was just sliding on the inside part of the plate, not the outside part. He was still sliding across the plate. Now, did he stick his leg out? Yeah, he did. Absolutely, but, but and, that, again, and that's where that's where it becomes again, interference because he's not trying to get to the base. Yes, he did. He went right across the base, but at the same time, well, he, he had his leg out. Okay, so he did both because he was allowed. He was allowed. Rule, to I guess the rule the, is you you have an arm's length to get to the base. He was allowed to because the defensive player was right there. It's just a, on a double play. If you turn a double play today, and the second baseman's right there and only a foot across the bag, you can still go right through the bag. And, and you could slide to the inside part of the bag and still hit the bag and not make it look egregious. You know what I'm saying? That that looked right. a little bit more egregious because you saw him stick his leg out at the last instant. If he just kept sliding. It, and, right. And, then I don't have a problem. Slid, I don't have a problem slid with that. through Diaz, he would have taken him out. He would have put it on right. the if, thing. Because, But because he sticks his leg out. He's right down the line. He actually comes inside and attempts to make contact with the catcher. I guess that's where my problem is. That but it's he was already – he and, was still across the plate at the same time. You've got to clear yourself, and that's the same thing in, is at home plate. If the ball's at home plate, and let's say that's not a force play, and you're there as a catcher, you have the right to take him over, take him down. That's what that's what Rizzo was thinking. He was right there close enough where I can take him out. Because you got to clear yourself if you're going to be right there. Right, and, and he you know. is – he had, and I and I'm I'm looking at the replay right now, uh, for I Diaz saw it the catcher. 10 times he, today. Yeah, he is. He's about a foot in front of the plate. He's a step in front of the plate, but he's also still completely on the dirt. So, like you said, if he would have started taking the ball in front, stretching towards Sean Rodriguez for the throw, by the time he shuffles out the two steps, he's in the grass, and Rizzo doesn't have a chance. Absolutely. to Absolutely. No, you you push hard off that corner, that front plate. You take that ball. You stretch like a first base, and if it's going to be bang bang. And you go toward it and clear yourself completely. Then you turn and square up to your right toward your first baseman and you throw a strike. You would be on the dirt. I mean, you would be on the grass almost. It wouldn't even be a close play. There would be no contest at now, all. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I get it. Um, and, and, it's, and that's the thing. When we have these things happening, it's usually one or two players miscalculating something or stepping the wrong way that changes the whole complexity at that play at the last second. But, you know, and I heard Diaz say, well, that's, we don't play old school anymore. That's just a good baseball play. That has nothing to do with old school. That, that's a good baseball play in my mind, just like Joe Madden said. I, I got to tell you, I 100% agree with Joe Madden. I saw his rant. And, and, and actually, you know what's funny about that? I wasn't watching that particular game. When I saw the rant, I thought Joe had it overturned. I thought it was against him. He was ranting. <laughs> right, right. I, well, but Joe, but Joe, and, and we both know Joe. We both worked with him. He has. He's going to stand up to his player yeah. for his player come hell or high water, even if he knows the player might, you know, a little close. He's always going to stand up well, for his guy. I, I can't say that that I would have said that. I I would say like I'll just say this: Chase Sutley. That was a that was a shame what Chase Sutley did in, in the playoffs mm -hmm. to the Mets a few years ago. Now. But that's why people will run through walls for Joe Now, Madden. what Jimmy Rollins said, and he was a Dodger at that time, he said that was a bad play by the shortstop. You never turn your back 
to the to the play. Right. And that's what the shortstop did. So both guys, one was an egregious slide to take him out in the playoffs. That's how Chase Utley was taught. And the other thing was the shortstop took the throw and did a reverse 360. And you never take your eyes off the, the player coming in. No. So that was Jimmy Rollins saying the shortstop made a mistake. I personally thought it was an egregious slide. So did MLB. And we're talking about that play in the playoffs. Uh, it was a Phillies and Dodgers. Utley. No, it was the Dodgers and Mets. Uh, Dodgers and Mets. Right. Dodgers and Mets. broke the shortstop's ankle. Right. And in fact, we were on, weren't we on satellite radio that night? And Steve Sachs called in to talk about it. I don't know that I was on radio that night because I was. I think I was. Okay. I, was I was covering well, I, I the just, playoffs I, for the yeah. Dodgers. I don't know. Oh, that's right. I don't think I was okay. on. But I thought right after that, I said, well, there's going to be. We did a show. We did a show. We, you and I did a show right yeah, after yeah, that together. And we threw and I, and Sachs came on and, yeah. and talked and talked about using the base as, as a, uh, as a yes, roadblock. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. You're right. Yes, he did. I don't know if it was that night, but it was. Yeah. It was right after right that. After. All yeah. right. Well, hey, listen, now we have something fun to talk about in our first podcast. We're going to release these podcasts every Tuesday and Thursday. You can find them on uh, Apple Podcasts. You can find them on Stitcher, TuneIn, and now Radio.com. And the Radio.com app is where you'll be able to find us every week. So that's the skipper, Kevin Kennedy. You can always find him on Twitter at Kevin Kennedy MLB. My name is Rich Rare. You can find me at RBI Rich. And every week we're going to sit around and we're going to talk a lot of baseball with you on our brand-new podcast, America's Best Baseball Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for joining us for America's Best Baseball Podcast. Our podcast was produced by Braden Suppernant. Find us on Facebook at America's Best Baseball Podcast. You can find Kevin at Kevin Kennedy MLB on Twitter, and you can find Rich on Twitter at RBI Rich. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.